Chapter Thirteen of the Autobiography of George Dewey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen, in command of the Asiatic Squadron. It had been a rule with me never to try to bring political influence to bear on the Navy Department in my favor, and never to join any group of officers in a common effort for bettering their position, perhaps at the expense of other officers, not to say at the expense of the efficiency of the service. When the question of a successor to acting Rear Admiral McNair in command of the Asiatic Squadron arose in the summer and fall of 1897, I knew that Commodore John A. Howell and myself were being considered for the position. The most influential officer in the distribution of assignments was Rear Admiral A. S. Crowninshield, chief of the Bureau of Navigation and a pronounced bureaucrat, with whose temperament and methods I had little more sympathy than had the majority of the officers of the Navy at that time. He would hardly recommend me to any command, and his advice had great weight with John D. Long, who was then Secretary of the Navy. Theodore Roosevelt was Assistant Secretary of the Navy. He was impatient of red tape, and had a singular understanding both of the importance of preparedness for war, and of striking quick blows in rapid succession once war was begun. With the enthusiastic candor which characterizes him, he declared that I ought to have the Asiatic Squadron. He asked me if I had any political influence. I expressed a natural disinclination to use it. He agreed with the correctness of my view as an officer, but this was a situation where it must be used in self-defense. One letter from an influential source in favor of Howell had already been received by the department. "'I want you to go,' Mr. Roosevelt declared. You are the man who will be equal to the emergency if one arises. Do you know any senators? My heart was set on having the Asiatic Squadron. It seemed to me that we were inevitably drifting into a war with Spain. In command of an efficient force in the Far East with a free hand to act in consequence of being so far away from Washington, I could strike promptly and successfully at the Spanish force in the Philippines. "'Senator Proctor is from my state,' I said to Mr. Roosevelt. "'He is an old friend of the family, and my father was of service to him when he was a young man.' "'You could not have a better sponsor,' Mr. Roosevelt exclaimed. "'Lose no time in having him speak a word for you.' I went immediately to see Senator Proctor, who was delighted that I had mentioned the matter to him. That very day he called on President McKinley, and received the promise of the appointment before he left the White House. When I next met Crowninshield, he told me that although I was to have the appointment, a fact which did not seem to please him any too well, Secretary Long was indignant because I had used political influence to obtain it. I went in at once to see Mr. Long, and said to him, Mr. Secretary, I understand that you are displeased with me for having used influence to secure command of the Asiatic Squadron. I did so because it was the only way of offsetting influence that was being exerted on another officer's behalf. You are in error, Commodore, said Mr. Long. No influence has been brought to bear on behalf of anyone else. 
Only a few hours later, however, Mr. Long sent me a note, in which he said that he had just found that a letter had been received at the department which he had seen for the first time. It had arrived while he was absent from the office, and while Mr. Roosevelt was acting secretary, and had only just been brought to his attention. An order, issued on October 21, 1897, detached me from duty as president of the Board of Inspection and Survey on November 30th, with directions that I should take passage to Japan in a Pacific Mail steamer sailing from San Francisco on December 7th, and report to Acting Rear Admiral McNair on board the flagship Olympia as his relief. In the month that I had remaining in Washington, I studied all the charts and descriptions of the Philippine Islands that I could procure, and put aside many books about the Far East to read in the course of my journey across the continent and the Pacific. At that time, not one man in ten in Washington thought that we should ever come to the actual crisis of war with Spain. Whether there was likelihood of war or not, it was my duty to make sure that the squadron was properly prepared for any emergency, and that not a single precaution was left to chance. Inquiry about the quantity of ammunition in the squadron developed the fact that there was not even a peace allowance. Although a further supply had been ordered, no one had seemed to think it necessary to facilitate its shipment, thanks largely to the red tape of official conservatism. Naturally, it was my business to request that it should be forwarded immediately. The department informed me that the Trans-Pacific steamers would not receive it, that no merchant vessel could be found to take it, and that it would have to await the sailing of the USS Charleston, then under repair and not likely to be in commission for six months. Vigorously supported by Mr. Roosevelt, I finally succeeded in having an order issued that the Concord, then fitting out at the Mare Island Navy Yard for service on the Asiatic Station, should transport as much of the supply as her limited carrying capacity would permit. When I reached San Francisco, there was time before sailing to visit the Mare Island Navy Yard in order to see in person that the ammunition was being put on board the Concord, and to impress upon the commandant of the yard the absolute necessity of loading her with every pound that could possibly be carried. I pointed out that by touching at Honolulu en route for supplies, much valuable stowage room that must otherwise be devoted to provisions and stores could be given up to ammunition while certain stores, which ordinarily would be shipped from San Francisco, might just as well be procured on arrival in Japan. Commander Asa Walker, of the Concord, actively entered into the spirit of my wishes. In consequence, a small vessel of only 1,700 tons displacement was able to carry about one-half of the total supply, or nearly 35 tons. The remainder, some 37 tons, was shipped by the old sloop-of-war Mohican, to Honolulu, and there transferred to the cruiser Baltimore, when, with the accelerating rush of events, it was decided the following March to send her to reinforce the Asiatic Squadron. As a matter of fact, she reached Hong Kong only forty-eight hours before our vessels left that port, in obedience to the Queen's proclamation of neutrality, and the ammunition was transferred to the other vessels of the squadron in Mears Bay, on the day of the declaration of war. 
even with the total amount thus sent the whole supply on hand when the ships went into action in manila bay was inferior to the storage capacity of their magazines and shell rooms being according to the calculations of the officers of the squadron only about sixty per cent of the full capacity authoritative statements have been made to the effect that the squadron was amply supplied with ammunition it was not even fully supplied let alone having any reserve therefore considering that i was operating seven thousand miles from the nearest united states navy yard and considering the possibility of a prolonged engagement with the spanish squadron such apprehensions as i had when we left mears bay were not confined entirely to the hazards of action it is not for me to criticize the department but only to state a fact and to repeat that there can be no neglect so inexcusable as that which sends any modern squadron into battle not only without its magazines and shell rooms filled but without a large reserve of ammunition within reach however even if we had had less ammunition we should have gone into manila bay for such were our orders and such was the only thing to do when i was assigned to the command the number of flag officers allowed by law was six rear admirals and ten commodores but in order to give our fleet commanders in foreign waters a position commensurate with the dignity of the country they represented it had been for many years the unvarying custom that every commodore ordered as commander-in-chief of the asiatic squadron should hold the acting rank of rear admiral from the moment that his flag was hoisted so long indeed had this practice been followed that it had come to be regarded as almost a right it was a surprising innovation when secretary long informed me that in my case i was to hoist the broad pennant of a commodore and not the flag of a rear admiral no one could have known better than rear admiral crown and shield secretary long's chief adviser how subordinate this would make my position in all intercourse with the squadron commanders and officials of other nations and particularly in case any necessity for combined international action should arise this was one of those little pin-pricking slights which are bound to be personally unpleasant to any officer of long service but as one of my friends pointed out by way of sentimental compensation the only one of my predecessors who had won great name by his action in the far east also held the rank of commodore this was matthew c perry the masterful diplomatist who opened up japan to civilization by mingling suavity with forcefulness in such a manner that he is to-day almost as much acclaimed in japan as if he were a national hero after all if manila were won it did not much matter whether it was won under a commodore's or a rear admiral's emblem in the harbor of nagasaki japan on january third eighteen ninety eight i took over command from acting rear admiral f b mcnear and hoisted my broad pennant on the olympia my staff was lieutenant t f brumby as flag lieutenant and ensign h h caldwell as flag secretary with ensign f b upham as aide brumby and caldwell had accompanied me from home and both remained with me constantly until my return to america the squadron at that time was hardly a formidable force for war purposes consisting of the cruiser olympia flagship the boston a small cruiser the petrel gunboat and the antiquated monocacy a paddle-wheel steamer of the civil war period fit only for river service 
but the crews were mostly long-service men, and their spirit was fine. A long official letter transmitting the files and records of the command to its new commander-in-chief was interesting, in that it contained no hint of the pregnant offense then impending. The uneasy state of affairs in Korea, some anti-missionary riots in China, the seizure of Kao Chow Bay by the Germans one month earlier, the attitude of the Japanese, and some minor international matters were mentioned, but in no manner was there any forecast given of the work in which the squadron would soon be so vitally interested. The only reference to the Philippines was a short paragraph to the effect that, quote, for some time the newspapers have contained accounts of a rebellion in progress in the Philippines, but that no official information has been received in relation thereto, and no information of any sort that shows American interests to be affected. In fact, at that time, the Philippines were to us a terra incognita. No ship of our service had been there for years. When, after my appointment as commander of the Asiatic Squadron, I sought information on the subject in Washington, I found that the latest official report relative to the Philippines on file in the Office of Naval Intelligence bore the date of 1876. Mr. Charles B. Harris, recently appointed from Indiana, an energetic and delightful man, was consul at Nagasaki. I recollect that Mrs. Harris, who was a strong advocate of peace and much interested in missions, asked me why we needed to maintain expensive men of war and their officers and men. I laughingly told her that sometimes missionaries found their lives in danger and asked for protection. Again, our country had been known to go to war in the past, and might, in the future, in which event our squadron was supposed to represent us against the enemy on the seas. After the battle, in answer to Mr. Harris's letter of congratulations, I said that I trusted that Mrs. Harris now knew why we maintained a navy, to which he cleverly replied that not only did she know, but so did more than eighty million other Americans. A custom of each new commander-in-chief of our Asiatic squadron to ask for an audience with the Emperor of Japan had latterly fallen into neglect. The Japanese, in view of the part that Commodore Perry had played, had remarked an omission which so proud and so sensitive a court would be the last to overlook. It seemed to me important to observe this and every other amenity which in any degree would tend to retain the goodwill of a friendly nation. Therefore I requested the audience without delay and proceeded to Yokohama, where I expected the Concord at an early date with her precious cargo of ammunition. Accompanied by my personal and fleet staff, I was received first by the Emperor, and afterward by the Empress. These receptions, which were very cordial, had little of an Oriental character. If we accept the surroundings, the decorations of the palace and the costumes, and occasional genuflections of the servants, the scene might as well have been laid in the court of Berlin, St. Petersburg, or any European capital, as in that of Tokyo. His Majesty was in military dress in the midst of a brilliant suite of aides, court chamberlains, and other court functionaries in Occidental uniforms, while the Empress was in a Parisian costume and attended by a single maid of honor who served as interpreter. Both their Majesties spoke in Japanese, but while the Emperor's interpreter translated his remarks in an ordinary tone of voice, the Empress's interpreter never addressed her above a whisper. 
What a contrast was my reception to that of the other American Commodore who had cast anchor in the Gulf of Yeddo forty-four years previously. One Commodore was regarded with an apprehensive consternation, only rivaled in degree by the cataclysmic changes in beliefs, customs, and policy of which he was the precursor, while the other was welcomed with all the amenities of modern times. The one, after vexatious delays, was allowed to meet the representatives of an invisible and impotent Mikado, while the other was openly received by a constitutional monarch. The one landed in a country secluded in insular oriental isolation, while the other debarked in a thriving port open to the commerce of the world, from which he traveled to Tokyo by rail. Of all the changes which the world has seen in the last century, none has been so phenomenal as that so splendidly accomplished by Japan since the memorable visit of Commodore Perry. This audience with the Emperor established pleasant relations with the court and many Japanese officials, while the goodwill of the Japanese government was shown by the discretion and courtesy of the Japanese Navy, which was always represented by one or more vessels in Manila Bay during the tedious and trying days of the blockade in the interval between the annihilation of the Spanish squadron and the occupation of the city by our troops. The Concord arrived in Yokohama on February 9th. On the 10th she transferred her ammunition, and on the 11th the Olympia sailed for Hong Kong, to which port the petrol had already been ordered. My decision to take the squadron to Hong Kong was entirely on my own initiative, without any hint whatsoever from the department that hostilities might be expected. It was evident that in case of emergency, Hong Kong was the most advantageous position from which to move to the attack. The news of the main disaster, which occurred February 15th, February 16th in the Eastern Hemisphere, was known in Hong Kong when the Olympia arrived there on February 17th. But official notification did not reach the flagship until the following day. Its wording shows how carefully our government was moving in a moment of such intense excitement. Dewey, Hong Kong. Maine destroyed in Havana February 15th by accident. The President directs all colors to be half-masted until further orders. Inform vessels under your command by telegraph. Long. Though President McKinley was still confident the war could be averted, active uh, naval measures had already begun. So far as Navy Yard work upon ships and initial inquiries with regard to the purchase of war material were concerned. But the first real step was taken on February 25th, when telegraphic instructions were sent to the Asiatic, European, and South Atlantic squadrons to rendezvous at certain convenient points where, should war break out, they would be most available. The message to the Asiatic Squadron bore the signature of that assistant secretary who had seized the opportunity when acting secretary to hasten preparations for a conflict which was inevitable. As Mr. Roosevelt reasoned, precautions would cost little in time of peace and would be invaluable in case of war. His cablegram was as follows. Washington. February 25th, 98. Dewey, Hong Kong. Order the squadron except the Monocacy to Hong Kong. Keep full of coal. In the event of declaration of war, Spain, 
your duty will be to see that the Spanish squadron does not leave the Asiatic coast, and then offensive operations in Philippine Islands. Keep Olympia until further orders. Roosevelt. The reference to keeping the Olympia until further orders was due to the fact that I had been notified that she would soon be recalled to the United States. I dispatched a cablegram to expedite the arrival of the Boston and the Concord, and one to the United States Consul at Manila, in which I asked him for information concerning the fortifications, submarine mines, and general defenses of Manila Bay, and to keep a close watch upon the movements of the Spanish squadron. Meanwhile, with my staff, I went into exhaustive consideration of the grave questions of a supply of coal, provisions, and other necessaries for a squadron 7,000 miles distant from any home base, which would result from a proclamation of neutrality by the various governments. Although no instructions to such effect had been received from the department, discreet negotiations for the purchase of supply steamers with full cargoes of coal were initiated. The Boston and the Concord soon arrived, as did also the Raleigh, sent as a reinforcement from the Mediterranean, while the antiquated Monocacy was laid up in Shanghai, and a part of her officers and crew were transferred to the ships at Hong Kong. These vessels were now carefully overhauled and docked, kept constantly full of coal and provisions, their men thoroughly drilled, machinery put in prime condition, ready for moving at a moment's notice, and preparations to land superfluous material and woodwork perfected, while I aimed to take every care in the inspection of ships and crews, and to use all the knowledge of my experience to improve the efficiency of the whole for battle. Aside from the crisis of our relations with Spain, it was a critical period in international relations in the Far East. Germany, in forwarding her ambitions for colonial expansion, had just taken Kao Chao as a punitive measure for the killing of missionaries, thus bringing the province of Shantung under the sphere of her influence. England, which had occupied Weihai was looking askance at Russia, who was fortifying herself at Port Arthur. The dismemberment of China seemed imminent to many observers. Hong Kong Harbor was crowded with men of war. There was a feeling of restlessness and uncertainty in the air. A feature of the imperial German policy at this time was the Kaiser's sending of his brother, Prince Henry of Prussia, to the Far East, flying his flag as rear admiral and second in command of the German squadron. The prince arrived at Hong Kong on March 8th. He was then under forty years of age, vigorous, a charming companion, and a thorough sailor who had really worked up through all the grades, from midshipman to rear admiral. Although brought up in the strict forms of court etiquette, he was delighted to cut adrift from conventionalism whenever circumstances would permit. Soon after the arrival of the German squadron, a curious international question arose. Some of the German seamen came on board the Olympia to pay a friendly visit to members of our crew. Among them was a seaman of the cruiser Gefion, who was recognized by the officers of the deck and by others of our personnel as a deserter from one of our own ships. As he wore the German uniform and belonged to the crew of a German man-of-war, he could not well be arrested. But when the fact that he was a deserter had been proved indisputably, he was ordered to leave the ship. A correspondence with the German rear admiral ensued, 
in which our demand for the surrender of the deserter was met by the assertion that he was a German subject and a seaman in the German navy, and in neither capacity would he be given up. Owing to the presence of a European royal prince, which was rare in the Far East, there was uh, much entertaining by the officials of the British Crown Colony of Hong Kong, and much interchange of hospitalities among the ships. Among the numerous dinners was one given by Prince Henry on board of his flagship, the Deutschland. When the acting governor, Major General W. Black, the commandant of the British naval station at Hong Kong, the commodore of the American squadron, and the captains of several British, American, and Russian men-of-war were the principal guests. As is customary on such occasions, toward the end of the dinner, Prince Henry proposed in succession the health of the heads of the various nationalities represented, the toasts being drunk standing and the Deutschland's band at the same moment playing the appropriate national air. The usual procedure is that after a toast to his own sovereign, the host proposes in turn the health of the ruler or chief magistrate of each country represented at the table, their toast being given in the order of rank of the senior officer present. In this case, the first toast was naturally one to the health of the German Emperor, then one to the Queen of England, and though the next should have been to the President of the United States, because we had a squadron commander present, Prince Henry made it to the Tsar of Russia, represented by a captain, and placed the President of the United States at the end of the list. With the toast to the President, the band played Hail Columbia. For many years in our service, confusion existed as to the identity of the national air of the United States. This was due to the assignment by Navy regulations of one air, the Star-Spangled Banner, to be played at morning colors, and another, Hail Columbia, at evening colors. Characteristic instances of the embarrassment in the exchange of international courtesies, which naturally resulted from this circumstance, had frequently come to my notice. Now, as the guests were reseating themselves after this toast, I reminded the prince that Hail Columbia was not our national air. What is it? His Highness asked. The Star-Spangled Banner, I told him, and added that I should be happy to send him a copy. I dispatched one the same night, and it was played by the Deutschland's band at Colors the very next morning. It was my good fortune some years later to be instrumental in permanently eliminating all confusion to officers on this subject. Through a personal appeal to President Roosevelt, I had an order, dated April 22, 1904, issued by the then Acting Secretary of the Navy, Charles H. Darling, directing that thereafter the Star-Spangled Banner should be played at both morning and evening colors, and should be regarded for the purposes of the Navy as the national air. Subsequently, it was adopted both in the Army and the Navy regulations. The relegation of the President by Prince Henry to the last toast was not a thing to be considered as a personal matter, but as one affecting the nation and its head whom I represented, and also as expressive of an attitude not altogether uncommon at that time with uh, some European powers, this attitude I felt I could not overlook. Therefore, the American officers were conspicuous by their absence thereafter at entertainments given at Hong Kong in Prince Henry's honor, until at one of them the prince remarked that no Americans were present and asked his hostess the cause. It is one that your royal highness should be aware of, she replied. 
When he pleaded ignorance, she told him the reason why I had taken offense. The next morning, unattended and in citizen's clothes, he came on board the Olympia to call, and with fine candor expressed his regret for an error in which there had been no intentional slight, and which was due to his lack of experience in such matters. After that we saw a great deal of each other, and neither of us hesitated to express our convictions freely in our talks. Upon one occasion, in discussing the possible outcome of our complications with Spain, Prince Henry remarked that he did not believe that the powers would ever allow the United States to annex Cuba. "'We do not wish to annex Cuba, Your Highness,' I answered, "'but we cannot suffer the horrible conditions of affairs which exist at present in that island at our very doors to continue, and we are bound to put a stop to it.' "'And what are you after?' "'What does your country want?' the prince asked jokingly on another occasion, and referring to the general scramble for a foothold in the Far East. "'Oh, we need only a bay,' I said jokingly, and in return, having in mind that this was all the Germans said they wanted at Kalchau, it did not then occur to me that we should be taking Manila Bay permanently. End of chapter 13